Good morning. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. It has been a momentous week with the introduction of legislation by Senator Rand Paul finally holding the country that we spend so much time talking about, the pernicious Peninsular State Cutter, demanding that the U.S. withdraw any arms sales to the country in Senate Joint Resolution 26. There's a great article on The Hill today that you can find on their website at thehill.com, written by me, helped very much with the actual content by General Editor of the Middle East Forum, who joins me this morning, Gary Gamble. And before we get to the actual news, our program today will consist of two interviews, one with Josh London, the Director of Governmental Affairs for the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, speaking about that organization's outreach, not just to Israel, but also Arab countries and its efforts to try to combine this new Sunni-Israeli alliance. Beyond that, we also have Bradley Martin, covering the recent pernicious CARE, Council on American-Islamic Relations, report on Islamophobia funding, and I put that in quotation marks, from 2014 to 2016, and we'll be joined by Bradley at 1010. But first, news from the region. Democracy campaigners in Sudan have rejected a plan by military authorities to hold elections within nine months, one day after heavily armed paramilitaries attacked a protest camp in Khartoum. More than 35 people were, even just this morning, thought to have been found in a river outside of the capital. Moreover, it seems as if those several hundred injured have also been experienced at the sit-in, which had been at the center of a campaign to bring democratic reform to Sudan. The death toll is expected to rise. Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Bahran said in a statement on national television early on Tuesday morning that polls were planned and that all previous agreements with the main opposition coalition had been canceled. So much for being able to have a successful revolution and then counter-revolution in Sudan. Also, this weekend was the Mecca Summit, where we had the Gulf Cooperation Council, the Arab League, and the Organization of Islamic Countries all meeting in Mecca in Saudi Arabia, discussing regional issues, Islamic issues, and Arab issues. Now, one of the things that Gary noted to me this morning before the broadcast was that presiding over these three intra-Muslim or intra-Islamic and intra-Arab bodies was King Salman, the king of Saudi Arabia, an individual who was not to have been found there. I mean, he was in some pictures and he didn't show up in some videos, but he didn't have any main role in terms of delivering any policy speeches was Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and son of King Salman. Gary, what's your perspective on this? Why do you think that Salman was at center stage and MBS was off to the side? Um, well, I think part of it is that uh, King... King Salman decided that he wanted to deliver a message of solidarity with the Palestinians. There are really two themes, uh, Palestinian rights and Iran. And one might have expected MBS to play a greater uh, role in rallying uh, the Arab and Islamic worlds against Iran because that's really been his number one issue. Uh, so I would, I would interpret King Salman's uh, preeminent role at, at, at these summits as uh, possibly not um, a reduction of, MB, of the Crown Prince's power, but um, possibly to, to project an image of uh, stability and continuity to the world. Because the, the Khashoggi affair really hasn't died down yet. We, we still, uh, it's still getting a lot of headlines in the news. Now, beyond the Khashoggi affair, we also see that King Salman was calling for Arab and Muslim unity against 
what he called Shia incursions into the Middle East, this being Iran, Saudi Arabia's penultimate enemy, and also an enemy of the United States. Now, in Iran, there was a news report that came out from SwissInfo.ch, where Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said on Tuesday that Tehran would not be deceived by U.S. President Donald Trump's offer of negotiations and would not give up its missile program. I also understand that with the clarion call from King Salman to confront Iran's aggression in the region, King Salman was trying to make a play for Arab unity, also Muslim unity. But one country that voted against the document or, or didn't agree to actually sign the declaration that was in the Mecca summit was Iraq. That's understandable. The right in sharing a large border with Iran. Qatar actually signed the document and then its foreign minister on Sunday said, well, we may have signed it, but we don't necessarily really agree with the policy that we were having in, in front there. What do you think is the need for King Salman to unify the Middle East or the Arab world, probably not including uh, Lebanon to a certain extent, or at least the Shia elements of Lebanon, Syria, now Qatar and Iraq? How are his efforts going in terms of being to unite the Arab world against Iran? Um, I, 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 I would say that's unclear, although the fact that Qatar was invited to uh, at least two of the summits, the Arab League and the GCC summits, um, and sent, I think, the prime minister uh, is, is a change. You know, uh, two years ago, uh, Saudi Arabia led a coalition of Arab states to impose to break relations with Qatar, to uh, close off their airspace and their, and their trade routes and everything. And um, so there, there, there's been some speculation that King Salman is in, is in favor of reconciling with Qatar, whereas MBS isn't. And so if Qatar was there, it may have been MBS's choice to play a, a less prominent role because that's sort of his issue. Now, in Lebanon, there's a planned demolition of concrete shelters housing Syrian refugees near the Lebanese-Syrian border, making the possibility of at least 15,000 children being homeless, aid groups warned on Tuesday. The authorities in April set a June 9th deadline for Syrian refugees living in shelters built with materials other than timber and plastic sheeting in Arsal to bring their homes into compliance. In Arsal, which lies in northeastern Lebanon, more than 5,000 structures were made with concrete and are now slated for demolition. Similar measures could affect other communities in the near future, it said. Lebanon also only allows informal camps for Syrian refugees to prevent permanent settlements that would affect its delicate demographic balance. Lebanon is home to an estimated 1.5 to 2 million Syrian refugees. This isn't Lebanon's first refugee problem, Gary. We've had the Palestinian community there since at least 1948, with others being there since 1967, the end of the... Uh, six-day war between Israel and its Arab neighbors, except notably Lebanon wasn't really involved with that conflict. What's the future for Syrian refugees in Lebanon? Oh, I think it's very bleak, because if there's, if there's one thing that most Lebanese dislike even more than Palestinian refugees, it is Syrian refugees. Um, because, you know, there's a long history of the Syrians occupying Lebanon. Um, so I, I think it's a very unfortunate situation. These refugees are predominantly Sunni. If they were naturalized en masse, it would nearly are well nearly double the Sunni population of Lebanon and make them overwhelmingly the largest uh, of, of the sectarian groups in Lebanon, which would upset the balance of power. Um, and yet, if I was a Syrian Sunni living in Lebanon and Bashar Assad had just retaken control of most of Syria, I wouldn't go back. I don't know about anyone else. So uh, it, it, it's, it's really a difficult situation. Is there a potential here, just like the Palestinians in the 80s, 
In the, in the 70s, their militias really started gaining strength. In the 80s, they really started exerting that strength, leading to the 1982 Israel-Lebanon War. It was actually a war between Palestinians and Israelis fought in Lebanese territory right. after uh, Israel. Um, it was actually yesterday this took place. The Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom, Shlomo Argav, was uh, felled in an assassination attempt. He was permanently paralyzed. And that was the spark that led Israel to invade Lebanon all the way up to Beirut. Now, is there the possibility for the Syrians, the Syrian Sunnis, to arm themselves? In Lebanon? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think anyone's going to allow that. Okay. Now, before we get to our next subject, we are also going to announce that the Middle East Forum will be having a series of events in Israel this July. If you find yourself in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, check out our website, meforum.org, to find out all of the engagement we'll be having with all of Israel's political parties, and also the third anniversary of the Israel Victory Project in Jerusalem. After these messages, Bradley Martin. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem, Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. It's Greg Roman, Director of the Middle East Forum, and Gary Gamble, the Middle East Forum's General Editor, here on the program. And now we welcome to Middle East Forum Century Radio, Josh London, the Director of Governmental Affairs for the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs. Josh London was a longtime employee of the ZOA, having this year moved over to JINSA. Before that, he was the Policy Director at the Jewish Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and he also has experience working for the Orthodox Union. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, Josh, JINSA has been at the middle of engagement from Washington, D.C., from the nonprofit sector, both with Israel and also with Arab states. I believe that there's been some trips right now from JINSA to uh, Egypt. There was a trip to Cyprus. There was a trip to Greece. That's, I guess, your focus on the Eastern Mediterranean region. But before we get into that engagement of your regional affairs, what's JINSA's purpose? When was it set up? And what's your mission in Washington, D.C.? 
Sure. So Gins has been around since uh, 1976. Uh, it's, uh, it's dedicated to educating congressional, military, civilian, national security decision makers on American defense and strategic interests, primarily Middle East, of course, the cornerstone of which for us is a robust U.S.-Israeli security cooperation. Uh, and the Jinsa believes that a strong American military and national security posture is the best guarantor of peace and the survival of our values and civilization. So from 1976 till now, the focus has been on shoring up uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship by primarily taking uh, senior flag officers, both uh, retired and active duty um, U.S. officers, to Israel, uh, primarily shoring up for those officers who don't naturally have, uh, you know, through their professional work, interactions with Israel. We have a very large military establishment, after all. <laughs> so uh, a lot of it is making sure that basically everyone of importance at some point or another uh, not just has a, a meaningful, positive, uh, sort of professional or semi-professional, if they're retired, um, uh, in interaction with Israel, but uh, 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 an educated understanding, if you will, of the issues at stake, uh, of the nature of the relationship, the um, you know all the the myriad benefits of cooperation, and uh, and sort of the a general understanding of the role Israel plays in uh, buttressing and furthering uh, U.S. U.S. national security, uh, and then from that vantage point, uh, sort of understanding the region at large. Um, primarily, you know, CENTCOM, obviously, but uh, but really, since Israel's in UCOM, um, you know, the whole the whole um, uh, framework, uh, AFRICOM, UCOM, I, basically everyone can benefit uh, if no, for no other reason than because Israel is uh, America's strongest bulwark in the region, and so many of the national security threats that everyone else faces. Uh, stem from that region, Israel consequently has the greatest uh, sort of intel, uh, you know, data and knowledge gathering uh, and in general intel gathering operation uh, in, in real time, has the best of anyone, has the most training in that area, uh, and has the most um, effective counterterrorism, uh, you know, posture, uh, apparatus, uh, Process protocol, etc. So let's so let's let's let's, let's, let's talk learn. about the region for a second. Sure. Uh, an article published by a member of your board of advisors: The Eastern Mediterranean needs more U.S. warships. Written by former Admiral Mark P. Fitzgerald in Defense One, published just yesterday, reflects what I think is a two-track process that Jinsa is engaging in. You guys have been to Cyprus, you've been to Greece, you've been to Egypt, you've had many many trips of former U.S. flag officers to Israel. What is Jinsa's focus on the Eastern Mediterranean, and why is it important to increase the American presence there and cooperation with our allies in that region? Well, so it's an area that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention. Um, there are uh, a whole variety of, um, uh, of important aspects to it, both in terms of uh, just the geography, uh, you know, and, and uh, the players in the, in the field, in the region, but um, but even larger than that, um, since Turkey, you know, is an ally and yet a problem, 
uh, and U.S. policy remains kind of divided on this, and as a consequence, uh, well, not only, but partly as a consequence, uh, since everyone kind of follows the U.S. lead, either directly or indirectly, um, everyone else has, the, has a similar problem, right? So they are a, a NATO uh, member, uh, but they're doing all sorts of problematic things. And so the folks who are most immediately in that region have um, sort of a lot of experience in this regard. Uh, you know, and, and uh, there's a lot to be gained and learned from that, as well as understanding more directly, um, you know, in sort of a geographic terms, who our other allies are and sort of what they offer um, you know, just in terms of uh, our ability to maintain defensive posture, force projection, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so the the JINSA effort, which is sort of just getting off the ground, we're going to be issuing a variety of analysis and reports in, uh, in the coming months. Uh, but it's basically to, you know, buttress the importance of the region, get folks to kind of rethink and focus on it a bit more. Uh, some of our preliminary discussions with uh, congressional leaders, you know, has already sort of led to some initial legislation, you know, Rubio and, and some others um, who who have kind of the uh, Hellenic caucus type focus in the House and stuff. They So both House and Senate, they have been, you know, pushing for um, a little bit more robust U.S. Uh, sort of uh, Eastern Med connection. Uh, and, um, you know, it's uh, a lot of it is driven by concerns with Turkey, although not only. There's, a, you know, in general, it's kind of keeping tabs on the region. Uh, you know, much of the world, unlike the U.S., <laughs> lives in such close proximity to each other that an issue, you know, or, or a potential issue in one zone spills over uh, potentially quite quickly. Let me let me give uh, you what I what I think. Otherwise. Let me give you what I think are the main issues that the U.S. has, and, and the reason why it should focus on the Eastern Mediterranean. And then I'd like to pose a scenario to you and how you think the U.S. should respond to it. Okay. We right now have Nobel Energy, a Houston-based natural gas drilling company which is looking for natural gas off the Israeli coast within its EEZ, uh, exclusive economic zone, 200 nautical miles out, and where it meets different countries, Cyprus, Egypt, the disputed border with Lebanon right now, even Turkey in some places, we see that Israel has its domain for being able to potentially, with American support in this company now drilling, to be energy independent, switching over to natural gas. Cyprus is in the same situation. Greece has its own claims to fields, to gas fields in the Eastern Mediterranean. But then you have Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, all not necessarily, well, two of those countries I would categorize as adversaries of the United States, maybe Turkey being a frenemy, Lebanon being on the, uh, the cusp, on the precipice of potentially having hostile action against American companies drilling there. I mean, we have Hezbollah right now threatening to attack an American gas platform in Israeli waters. You can only imagine what the U.S. Navy would be needed for there. So let's give you this scenario, and this is something that's actually been talked about in the last few weeks concerning the Turks beginning to drill off the coast of northern Cyprus, the disputed territory since the Turkish army invaded in, 19, in the 1970s. Turkey moves its navy 
into Cypriot waters, not the Greek side, but the Turkish side. It starts to not just do exploration, but natural gas extraction. The Greeks become furious. You have two NATO allies now at each other's throats on these rich natural gas resources. What should the United States do? Uh, well, uh, it is a thorny issue. Um, so a lot depends. A lot depends ultimately on um, on the administration and, and sort of its larger strategic goals. But uh, from our vantage point, um, and I think for for allies in the region, what everyone wants most is uh, stability of the existing framework. So there has to be a way of um, pushing back on uh, on efforts to destabilize, to um, you know, thwart the 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 comedy that that otherwise exists. So there has to be some kind of signal, uh, either um, either diplomatic, economic, uh, you know, something something with teeth, however, uh, and with a clear understanding that um, you know red line can't be can't be trampled upon without consequences um you know for example currently with turkey the you know the uh both congress and the the united states in general are engaged on the struggle with uh, turkey and uh and oil sales uh, you know turkey still believes it can reconcile buying uh the s400 from russia and the F-35 from the U.S. when uh, that's a, a total non-starter. Uh, for one thing, the two are diametrically opposed. The S-400 is designed to thwart the F-35. So uh, to say the two things can exist in one space is kind of silly. But the bigger issue, of course, is that um, uh, that that allows basically a direct path for, for the Russians to get uh, greater intel on the F-35. Uh, and um, you know it's uh, it simply can't happen. So already, you know, besides just sending the warning and making it clear that that the sale is not going to happen if if they, if they go ahead with uh, with Russia, but we're already now you know looking for alternatives to those components that are currently provided by by uh, Turkey uh, or from Turkey, I should say. We're looking for alternatives, right? So we're already saying, look, you know. You're becoming untrustworthy. Uh, not only you're not getting the F-35s, but uh, those companies of yours that are right now sole providers, you know, for some of the components, we're, we're looking elsewhere. Um, so it's a warning shot. A lot that depends on Erdogan. Um, you know, he has a style of brinkmanship that tends to create lose-lose situations. That's if that's what he's pursuing, uh, then that's where we're headed. And um, you know, we'll we'll see exactly how it plays out. The 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 president, the president has kind of a mixed record uh, as the previous presidents have had when it comes to Erdogan. Um, you know, uh, on the one hand, at times they can talk tough, and on the other hand, they're suddenly falling over themselves to uh, highlight what a pal he is. Um, so, uh, what we need for starters is some clarity. Uh, and you know everyone else will will calibrate accordingly. Um, ideally, clarity stands with uh, you know um, 
the pre-existing infrastructure, if you will, you know, diplomatic, economic, military, and that our allies aren't the ones having to recalibrate, but rather the troublemaker. But, uh, you know, that's up to the president. I mean, that, that was one of the issues of the Iran deal was, uh, you know, we had a president who decided to recalibrate dramatically in a different direction uh, and uh, with consequences for everybody. Uh, that's, that doesn't seem as likely here, but... Um, uh, it's not, you know, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, President Trump likes to keep everyone guessing. <laughs> um, uh, personally, I, I feel, uh, you know, I, I basically still feel fairly confident that we'll end up in the right place, more or less. But um, ending up there higgledy-piggledy or ending up there by, you know, the strategic focus are two different things. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, two questions. One... Uh, last week, Turkey's defense minister announced that uh, Russian technicians would be arriving in Turkey to train Turkish personnel in the S-400. Uh, and it had earlier been reported that Turkish personnel are already in Russia uh, for such training. So first question is, do you, is it your impression that the Turkish decision is still reversible? Or have they uh, commit, committed to it to a degree that, it, that it's unlikely to be reversed? And the second question is, what what exactly would the consequences be regarding the F-35? Is that something that President Trump himself can kick Turkey out of? Is uh, are there would there need to be consultations with other members of the consortium? Uh, what would happen next with that? Uh, so, um, on the for the first question, uh, so f as far as we can tell, uh, it's not too late. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, both Turkey and Russia are not, um, uh, you know, they're not, how should I put it, uh, traditional Western players in in this space, if you will. Um, you know, in the United States, you sign a contract, you know, that's it. <laughs> you know, where does your bond? And that's kind of a done deal, and there's, there's uh, significant consequences if it's even possible to pull out of a deal. Um, uh, in much of the... Of, the rest of the world outside of, uh, of Western Europe proper, um, these things are uh, more fudgeable. Um, Turkey particularly, uh, it can be done. Um, Russia too, they, have, not, they don't have such a great track record. Um, so the real question is simply will, right? Uh, it, it's not an impossible... Um, uh, how to put it? We're not. We haven't set it up for failure, right? The the Turks can, in fact, disengage. Russia knows full well what's going on. Like you know, everyone everyone involved understands the stakes and understand what games people are playing. So it's not like they can't pull away. And you know, uh, there's some I don't know uh, adjudication, you know, to force them back in or something. No, they can pull away, right? Um, it's just a matter of of money changing, you know, that has changed hands already or whatever. But um, the for the most part, the personnel, you know, transfers have been, um, you know, it's it's partly it's just the basic training stuff. Uh, partly it's uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit more of a data dump education as part of the training, but it's still basically low level. A lot of that stuff is is uh, preliminary. Until actual hardware, um, you know, is on site, at that, I mean, that's when, once there's a hardware delivery, that's, that's game over. Um, 
you know, even though in theory you could force them to to send it back, and that's not how it works. <laughs> once once it's in once it's in transit, in fact, that's it. Uh, but we're not there yet. So so it uh, the choice is still a lively one. Uh, it can still be broken, um, but uh, you know it's not a good sign. Um, in terms of the second question, uh, so my understanding is. There's actually a couple of paths for for knocking them out. Right, Congress can um, essentially uh, outlaw the sale, um, which effectively they're attempting to do. The uh, SASC uh, put it into the NDAA to prevent it from happening. Um, there's a larger question as to whether or not that's fully binding, partially binding, what exactly the nature of that is. But that's Certainly, that that is a uh, a stumbling block, and it's something that a president, if they if he wanted, either could capitulate to or pretend to capitulate. You know, there, there's a, it can, he can use it in the course of discourse with Turkey to say, well, look, uh, you know, it's not just me. Now, now we have these guys who have to you know, we have to contend with. You need to prove, you know, intent or prove good intention or you know, peace offering something. Right, so it, it it could help his diplomacy in theory. Depends exactly on what the president wants. Yeah, likewise, in theory, the president can, in fact, just pull the plug. Um, we, uh, in theory, you know, there's a process. The consortium does have to be is, is supposed to be involved. There's supposed to be consultations, and all of that will happen in real time, sort of, you know, before the fact, after the fact. It's a little bit in flux, but. You know, the United States is. I mean, basically, if the president, uh, if the United States wants something, it it can get it, <laughs> and if it doesn't want it, it can stop it. Right. I um, mean, co- Congress can block this sale. You know, the Russians are still encroaching on the Turkish interests, which is something that I think right. that America has declared a red line. But Josh, we hope that Jinsa will be following up with these issues on this program in the months ahead. And as soon as those S four hundreds, if they do arrive in Turkey, we want to have you back on to comment on that. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. After these messages, Brad Martin. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Philadelphia Talk. 
Our next guest joins us from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Bradley Martin, who recently wrote an article about CARE's pernicious Islamophobia report. Now, Brad, before we get to you, I'd like to just basically say a few things about this report that's come out, including an update on CARE's legal activity, or rather their legal woes, Gary, I think is the way that we would uh, classify it according to what we put out on the website yesterday on meforum.org. CARE twice this year has been defeated by the Middle East Forum in legal proceedings. The first time, a action that we funded removed CARE from the San Diego Unified School District at the beginning of the year because we had believed that their encroachment on the border between mosque and state was going to the realm of being unconstitutional. And yesterday, a settlement between the American Freedom Law Center, led by David Yerushalmi, and the Middle East Forum separately announced the end of an 11-year legal saga where CARE settled confidentially. And now, now I'm, I'm asking why they asked that the settlement be confidential. I mean, I'm asking myself here, what does CARE have to hide about their alleged fraud and racketeering um, case with a Virginia legal clinic that they had sponsored back in 2008 with a disbarred attorney who actually never had received, he wasn't disbarred, he never was barred in the first place. He never had received his legal license. But before we get to that, we're gonna bring Bradley Martin to speak about his article. Now, Brad is a senior fellow with the News and Public Policy Group, the Chaim Solomon Center, and deputy editor for the Canadian Institute for Jewish Research, led by the impeccable Fred Krantz, good friend of the forum. He's also a writer for Islamist Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum. Brad, tell us about your article. Well, Greg, uh, first of uh, thank you for having me on your program. It certainly is uh, an honor. And uh, just a minor correction, I'm actually joining you from Herzliya, uh, city of Herzliya in Israel. Ah, Shalom uh, Herzliya, Habibi. Uh, welcome, welcome from Herzliya. I spent a long time there. I was a, a student at the IDC, one of Israel's best colleges. Now it's on its way to becoming a university there. And also it worked at the Gloria Center with uh, Professor Barry Rubin of Blessed Memory up until 2012 when I found my way back in the States. So uh, welcome from Herzliya. Oh, that's uh, wonderful to hear. I'm actually a student. I'm pursuing my master's in government, uh, specializing in uh, counterterrorism and homeland security here at uh, the IDC. So uh, it's a, a pleasure to meet a fellow uh, student or alumni from uh, IDC. So why, why don't we get into uh, CARE? Tell us about what you wrote. Right. Okay. Well, um, I, I, my, my piece uh, in uh, the Daily Wire... It, uh, it talks about uh, CARE, uh, which recently uh, put out a uh, what it purports to be an academic and uh, wide-reaching report on uh, is, uh, so-called Islamophobia and uh, the networks of support uh, in the United States. And uh, despite its uh, academic veneer, uh, the uh, report itself, uh, which is titled uh, Confronting Fear, Islamophobia and Its Impact in the United States, it is, uh, in fact, the farthest thing from the sort. It, it, it uh, masquerades as uh, an academic report uh, that uh, purports to be against uh, anti-Muslim bigotry. Uh, however, it, uh, in fact, uh, well, first on the report itself, it, uh, hi- it uh, purports to highlight how more than a 1,000 uh, mainstream foundations donated almost $125 million to so-called anti-Muslim groups. And uh, it, when in actuality, it uh, criticizes groups like the Middle East Forum, uh, in, in particular, for going uh, for supporting uh, 
legislation that goes against the Muslim Brotherhood, which is not anti-Muslim or against the mainstream uh, Muslims in the United States. It is, in fact, against uh, a terrorist organization, a radical Islamist uh, group. And uh, it is uh, this report which seeks to muddy the waters and uh, conflate uh, Islamist extremism with mainstream Islam. So, Brad, I, I want to give you and Gary here a logic puzzle. If you are an organization or an individual writing a report criticizing an organization for taking a statement against the Muslim Brotherhood, what do you believe would be your default position on the Muslim Brotherhood? Are you A, for it, B, agnostic, or C, you open to criticizing it but not calling for it to be banned? Let's start with Gary. Well, it depends on how emphatic your rejection is. Uh, CARE's rejection is very emphatic. Um, of course, CARE was founded by former members of the Muslim Brotherhood, so that's not, not too surprising. So one might be able to say that if they are criticizing MEF for being against the Muslim Brotherhood, they in fact favor by two pieces of information. One, they used to be part of the Brotherhood if they're not still and two, they're even going to bat for it. So we now have CARE not acting as the defender of Muslim civil liberties in the United States, or not just acting as the self-entitled defender of Muslim civil liberties in the United States, but also as a cheerleader for the Muslim Brotherhood. Brad, your response. Well, absolutely. It's, uh, it's not only a cheerleader for the Muslim Brotherhood. It, uh, it CARE, uh, under no uncertain terms, is the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States. Uh, you have uh, Nihad uh, Awad, uh, the executive director of CARE, uh, outright uh, praising, uh, supporting Hamas, and uh, which is essentially as part of the Muslim Brotherhood. It uh, split off. It, at uh, its beginnings, were the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, the Gaza Strip so it, until it uh, split off and became uh, Hamas, as we know today. Um, it uh, it is. In fact, uh, conflating it is a very dangerous uh, thing to do because uh, if you're saying that uh, being against the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, in fact uh, many Muslim countries themselves uh, oppose uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and consider them a terrorist organization, for instance, uh, uh, Saudi, Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, they have designated the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist group. So the question would be, uh, if you... If being against the Muslim Brotherhood is Islamophobic, would you be willing to uh, label these countries as Islamophobic as well? Right. We have the uh, you know the axiom the self-hating Jew. Now they're saying there's such a thing as self-hating Muslims. I, I find it all to be a great whitewash for defending extremism. Now, Brad, you also go in your article to cover the authors of this report and their troubled past. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the authors themselves, uh, uh, the endorsements are rather troubling, uh, to say the least. Uh, for example, uh, you have uh, you have uh, uh, Zainab uh, Arain. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, who's the research and advocacy manager at Care? Uh, has a has a long history of uh, praising Islamist movements such as the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, for ex and has uh, given a new modern spin on anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, such as uh, the long-debunked uh, blood libel, which claims that Israel kills Palestinians to steal their organs. And uh, it's rather ironic, uh, even though the 
report that uh, purports to be against uh, white nationalism and white supremacy. Uh, Irene uh, itself has uh, shared an article from uh, the white nationalist website Information Clearinghouse, which uh, alleges that uh, Israel controls uh, American leaders. Uh, and uh, if we go to the author, uh, report's co-author, uh, Abbas uh, Barzegar, who is also the um, research and advocacy director at CARE, uh, he has uh, characterized uh, Mahmoud Abbas, a Holocaust denier, and uh, in his pieces, you know, for uh, the Huffington Post, uh, his victory in, 2000, in his re-election in 2009 as uh, quote, a victory of Iran's rural and working classes. And, uh, in fact, uh, he has also used his uh, platform at HuffPost to spread the debunked uh, anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy uh, that uh, the creator of an anti-Islamic video, uh, which uh, was essentially uh, uh, blamed, you know, for the Benghazi riots, uh, uh, was actually an Israeli citizen, when in reality uh, he was an Egyptian-born Coptic Christian. Um, it's uh, also very, iro- it's also very ironic uh, that uh, this uh, Barzegger, uh, he calls for, he purports to be a uh, pro-civil liberties, and uh, however. Uh, he has uh, called uh, for the curtailing of uh, freedom of speech uh, when it uh, he, uh, going back to CNN for uh, the firing oct- of Octavia Nasser for uh, her eulogizing of a senior cleric uh, from Hezbollah. Uh, so I, I think, him, Brad, what what, what, what we have here, what we have here, yeah. is just a general idea that when the character of an author, or of this case, authors of a report, is not clear. Look at his Twitter feed. It'll tell you enough about the individual opinions of these people who brought these reports forward. Brad, thanks for joining us this morning. We uh, hope that you'll come back and tell us a little bit more about the report or any other publications that CARE comes out with. And good luck on your graduate degree at the IDC in Herzliya. Thank you, Greg. It's uh, uh, very good to be here. After these messages, back with a story about Iran. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more.
Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. Thanks to Brad Martin and Josh Lennon for joining our program today, but I also wanted to get to a story about Iran. We right now have Iran not just acting out in the region, but we also have them starting to face internal dissent inside of the country itself. There's been stories about punk rock shows in the middle of Tehran, uh, fashion shows which are taking place in the basements of the boudoir of Tehran's fashion scene. But we also have stories coming out of the Iranian countryside where in the light of massive flooding that was happening in the country, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in their first first and probably only humanitarian mission in their 40-year history was going out and trying to assist residents of the Arab majority, the only Arab majority uh, province of Iran in uh, Khuzestan province, where they were trying to help the Avazi population in the wake of devastating flooding that was going on. But a story comes out yesterday where the actual IRGC presence was not to ostensibly help the Avazi population, but they have now been conducting house-by-house raids of known centers of opposition to the regime. Now, on one hand, these guys are getting afflicted by these major floods that were coming in a time where Iran definitely needs a lot of rain. I mean, the water management problems and the wastewater management problems of Iran are an unknown but very, very devastating story, an unknown story in the West, but very familiar to those who are living in the southwestern regions of the country. But you have the IRGC using a humanitarian mission, the cover of a humanitarian mission, to start conducting house-to-house raids to oppress one of the main centers of political opposition to the government in Tehran. And I think that that's despicable. Just as I think what's despicable in a totally different story, the gradual ability for this new alliance of the far less far left regressive they call themselves progressive but i call them the regressive left in the uh, theme of majid nawad who also has a program from 12 to 3 gmt on the london broadcasting corporation who talks a lot about these issues but focusing on the connection between islamism in america and the regressive left here in the united states now gary uh, my co-host and the general editor of the forum has written a series of articles about modern anti-semitism what he calls the third rail of anti-semitism gary we haven't had you on this program to give your opinion on what you think may be the root of this new emergence of anti-semitism in the u.s congress or maybe moving a little bit away from anti-semitism and focusing on the rise of american islamism in the u.s congress but i'd like to hear your uh, perspective on three things one are Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and their compatriots in Congress truly anti-Semitic, or are they just offering uh, tweets of anti-Semitism? Two, what is the root of the Democratic Party not doing enough to condemn their anti-Semitic statements? And three, is there a parallel between Tlaib and Omar's statements and what's going on in Europe right now with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party? Your response. Uh, on the first question, it really depends on how you define anti-Semitism. If you define anti-Semitism as any anti-Jewish prejudice, then sure, uh, Elan Omar and Rashida Tlaib uh, have certainly expressed sentiments that, that can be characterized as such. But I would define it more um, in, in the classical sense of a very special kind of hatred that, that, that extends beyond uh, garden variety xenophobia or gar- garden variety racism. And, and in that sense, I, I would look past uh, Omar and 
uh, Tlaib, and look at look at the reaction of progressives throughout the United States, and especially within the Democratic Party. Um, the the thing I look for in diagnosing anti-Semitism is uh, you have to you have to ask yourself: it, it, is the antagonism expressed? Um, does it unusually target Jews? Does does it tar- target Jews more than say other ethnicities or other other uh, targets? And in the case of progressive Democrats, you have to ask: okay, if anyone else, if any other group, had been uh, besmirched uh, the way uh, Jews were with with the comments of these two congresswomen, what would have the reaction been if it, if it had been African Americans uh, who were the target of the abuse? And I think if it had been any other group other than Jews, the reaction would have been overwhelming. Um, mo- most progressives would have worn uh, as a badge of honor any kind of resolution condemning uh, the anti-Semitism, the bigotry of these remarks. Uh, in case of the, the, the two women themselves, you know, bo- both of them are Muslim. Uh, they come from uh, an Islamic cultural background, which has its own anti-Jewish baggage. But I wouldn't say that that hostility is necessarily the same as the, as the kind of anti-Semitism that, that we've had in our culture for the last, uh, especially the last hundred years or so. Not true of progressives who turn the other, who look away uh, and who are apologists for this kind of behavior. That That is more concerning to me because that's, that's more uh, sort of unusual um, and out of the box. Um, more conspicuous a departure from sort of uh, their regular politics uh, than it is in the case of these two congresswomen, who are, who are radical on a lot of other issues. I, I wouldn't argue that, I wouldn't say that they focus inordinately on Israel and the Jews. When progressives defend them, they are focusing, they are making an exceptional, they are taking an exceptional position on Jews when they excuse this behavior, but don't excuse other uh, instances of racism and bigotry. So connecting to the third part, this isn't something that's just present in the U.S. Congress, but we see ebbs and flows of this. I mean, just last week, the United Kingdom's Equality Commission launched an investigation into the Labor Party. There was a statement made by Tony Blair over the weekend in a conference that took place on, where he was on a multi-individual uh, panel when he was asked the question, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic, the leader of the Labor Party? And his response was, I could hardly imagine that in 2006, when I was the leader of the Labor Party and I set up the Equal Rights Commission, that it would be investigating the party that I once led. And in his response about to Corbyn being anti-Semitic, he said, I do believe he's anti-Semitic, but I don't think he realizes it. (laughs) So is there similarities between the two, uh, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party and also what's going on with the investigation by the UK government into the Labor Party? Uh, there are, because really what what uh, ha- has brought the Labor Party to its heels politically in terms of the departure of Jewish voters is not so much Corbyn's behavior. It's the behavior of the broader Labor Party, which has been slow in uh, reprimanding or expelling uh, egregious anti, you know, anti-Semites from the party itself. Um, and and, and it's, it, it, it's really the, the reaction of the party itself to people like Corbyn. Uh, that is the big concern. Um, and, so, and, you know, the, the question of whether Corbyn is uh, anti-Semitic or just so militantly far left that he uh, is an apologist for anti-Semitism in some sort of, 
you know, strategic calculation, it's sort of irrelevant because he's, he's, he's dangerous either way. Certainly. And I think that to bring this back to the subjects that we focus on, which is Islamism in the West and also American interests in the Middle East, that the strategic apathy or, or the strategic embracement of far left apathy towards the plight of the Jewish communities in Europe and in the United States is a way in which Islamists can find comedy with not just those that they consider to be unnatural political allies. I mean, if we see the Arab revolutions that took place in the 50s and the 60s, it was largely left-leaning socialist pro-Soviet uh, Arab military hunters, which took over from governments that had been instilled by Western governments. But this is a very, very easy way for Islamists to ride their way into political power and to align themselves. We're just beforehand, I mean, only 10 years ago, there was no Islamist political party in France. Now you have like a French Hezbollah, which has been launched. In the UK, you find that most of Corbyn's allies are of the uh, Asian background, I would say, and their constituencies have often been disproportionately the areas from where we have British radicalization within their Muslim community taking place. And here in the United States, you find that Omar's constituency, which is uh, part and parcel, uh, probably the highest concentration of Somali refugees in the United States, in Minnesota's, I think it's her first district or the eighth district. Tlaib had the benefit of running against a mixed uh, uh, crowd of, I think it was seven African-American candidates in the primary for that nomination. She was able to win by the first past the post system. Her future in Congress may be in doubt if the um, majority, minority community there can find someone to challenge her in the primary next year. But you now have Omar, after being elected, not just serving as a, as a sort of a foil for, for leftist tendencies amongst the you know, gang with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Tlaib, but she is also the most requested speaker on the Islamist speaking circuit. She's at Islamic Relief. She's at CARE. She's at the Islamic Society of North America, ISNA. She's at MAS, the group that was responsible for the anti-Semitic song saying, kill the Jews, just here in Philadelphia a few weeks ago. And she's going to bat for them, not just speaking for them, but using her reputation to help raise money for these organizations. What's next? Well, what, what's next is they're going to help her raise money for her reelection. And my, my prediction is that she will be reelected unless there is a concerted, organized effort from the very top of the Democratic Party to ostracize her, which there isn't. Um, unless that happens, I think, I think she'll be reelected. Because if you think about it, every far leftist and every Islamist in the country, not just Minnesota, is going to write her a check. And that's, you know, perfectly legal. So. And we, we've been having a project here at the Middle East Forum since 2014 called Islamist Money and Politics. But we've seen this transformation of the program in the last five years where it's no longer just Islamist money in politics. It's Islamism in American politics. They are in the U.S. Congress. Now, I've had arguments with some staff that have said it is disingenuine to call these individuals Islamists. They say uh, Ilhan Omar goes to bat for the uh, pro-choice position relating to uh, abortions. She goes to bat for the rights of the LGBT community. What Islamist would be in favor of um, these uh, values which, and these values and characters and backgrounds which are inherently against the Quran? 
But I point you to a story that was out today on CNN. Actually, not on CNN. One of our fellows, Seth Fransman, wrote an article in the Jerusalem Post today that covered uh, Qatar, my favorite country to talk about, where on one hand, it was using Al Jazeera Plus, its uh, digital uh, media channel, to celebrate Pride Week here in the United States. And at the same time, using that channel to condemn what they called the homophobic behavior of the American, Bangladeshi, uh, British, and maybe the Saudi governments. All the same while, it's illegal to be gay in Qatar. You get a seven-year prison sentence. Just in 1996, they sentenced an American to 90 lashes and being expelled from the country because he was caught um, in some act. So if it's okay for the world's largest sponsor of Islamism to use two-faced taqiyya or saying one thing and actually believing something else in the aims of advancing your political goals, I'm reminded of a statement that Tlaib's campaign outreach director made at a conference in Chicago right after she was elected, where I, I forget his name. We'll maybe get back to it next week. But he said, we ally with the progressives because it helps us, helps us get, get elected. But the, by the time that we can consolidate our political agenda, that means that we're in charge and we'll no longer have to ally with them. Thank you very much to Gary Gamble, the general editor of the Middle East Forum, Bradley Martin, Islamist Watch writer, and Josh London, the director of the Jewish the Director of Government Affairs for the Jewish Institute for National Security of America. We'll be back next week with Middle East Forum Century Radio. This is Greg Roman signing off. Have a great week.